Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, welcome, Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history, and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello everyone. Hi everybody and welcome back to the Irish Passport. So today we are examining the relationship between Ireland and Europe both today and in the past. Yes we are. We're examining the country's relationship with the continent over the centuries and what might lie ahead for it in this moment of upheaval. Yes we are of course talking about Brexit, the UK leaving the EU, which is an incredibly complicated process which has implications for everything from nuclear energy to whether planes can take off the ground and it also has massive implications for Ireland not least because of that complex and contested border that cuts across the island of Ireland, as we discussed in our first episode. There hasn't really been a debate about whether, in Ireland anyway, about whether Ireland is also going to exit the EU. Like, it's not even a question. Yeah, and there are a couple of reasons for this. Like, the idea of Ireland leaving the EU is a very minority view in Irish politics, for one. And secondly, opinion polls have shown consistently Ireland to be one of the most pro-EU countries in the whole block. So why is this is the interesting question. Why isn't there a debate? Why are Irish people so different to our close UK neighbours about the question of Europe? So Tim took to the streets of Dublin to ask some ordinary Irish citizens what they think of the EU and whether they feel European as well as Irish. So if you could say your, your first name. And, uh, David. And uh, where do you come from? Uh, Woodford. Uh, if there was a vote tomorrow for Ireland to leave the EU, uh, how would you vote? Probably remain. You hesitated there. Why, why is that? The reaction that I saw in EU, Sean's reaction to a democratic process of Brexit, I felt they were very kind of pompous about it all. A large amount of them are actually unelected, yet they seem to wield a lot of power. And I kind of liked that Brexit. It was kind of within a cutting off your nose to spite your face, maybe, but it also took back a little bit of power for what I think could eventually get out of control with, with the EU. And do you think there would be any particular advantages for Ireland to leave? Probably more negatives than positives. I think uh, England or Britain can handle it better because they've got a bigger economy. Um, whereas I think we would kind of suffer a bit more from it, I think. And I think, like, you can see around college here, like, it'd, if that would affect the travel of, like, um, students from all around Europe to come here, it's definitely a negative. Okay, and do you, do you feel European yourself? No. Well, why not? I, I think my culture is shaped on being Irish. Oh. Um, I don't know what a European feeling is. Simon Carroll. Simon Carroll and? Patrick Austin. And are you both from Dublin? Yeah. You're both Bray, from yeah. Bray, Bray yeah. Dublin yeah. from Condra. And if uh, Ireland were to hold a referendum tomorrow to leave the EU, what would you do? I'd vote to remain reluctantly. You know, it needs to be reformed, but I'd vote to remain. And what are your reasons for that? Uh, well, I think just it's, it's, you'll do more harm in the short term if you leave, you know, trade deals, free trade deals, and there is a bit of a democratic deficit in it, but It'll, it'll be a longer run, it'll, it'll hurt you. And is that your main objection, the democratic deficit? Well, and and I'd probably get rid of the euro. Yeah. Why is Would that? You? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Would you not? No. Why, is that? Why not? Because I, because it's, well, it's handy. For It's the easiest answer, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Cost you money. Your interest rates cost are, you money. are tied to your German exports. So, I mean, it's, it's basically a German-run currency. 
Uh, okay, well, yeah, if you want to be pedantic. Well, I don't it's not think pedantic, so, it's, it's <laughs> detail. That's detail, man. I need detail. Do no. you feel European? Yes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Sure. Very much yeah, so. Yeah. Very much well, so. Well, I am European. Mm. And what does that mean to you? It means well, it means, yeah, it's culture, it's literature, it's art, it's that kind of thing. And do you think yeah. we'd lose something if we left? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we would. But, like, apart from the economic side of it, the more important stuff, you know, culture and literature. And being a, being a free movement is, is great. You know, that's, that's a great thing. Have great you lived thing. in another EU country at any point? Yeah. Yeah. Lived in Germany, lived in Spain. Okay. Um, over the years. Uh, and that's probably one of the main re reasons why I wouldn't want to leave. Because uh, I do see myself as well, Irish first and European second. Yeah, absolutely. And, no, uh, you're just isolating yourself, especially in the modern world, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, different political blocks. I mean, there's 500 million people in, in the European Union. It's the Six. biggest, single biggest free trade area in the world. So I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's a pretty new argument. I mean, it. and also uh, the English or the the British, mainly the English, really voted to leave. Not they didn't. They right? didn't. They didn't think about um, Ireland or when they were voting. So why should we think about them? It's Ireland first, and being part of Europe, I think, is much better. And speaking of that, what about the border then? The border question. I don't know how they're going to work that one out. Actually, I would be worried about it. If, I'd if, be worried about it if they eventually leave. I would. I mean, there's all sorts of tensions still up there. Well, you see, if we have the vote, they become part of Ireland. That's another story. But with the DUP, I can't see that happening. Right. So, would, would, do you think this could lead to a united Ireland under some circumstances? Yeah, it could. It could do, yeah. Absolutely, but. yeah. It just depends if they can get... Like you said, though, with the DUP there, they won't get a border poll. It depends how, how hard they're hit economically. It'll all come down to the economics of it. So, so I think have a lot to say because it's cross-border farming. All, all the border counties have said yeah. they, they don't want any kind of hard border there, so... It could, but like I said, no one, no one really knows at the moment. That's the problem. The conservatives don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue. So, the question I'd put to you is: If there were a referendum tomorrow to leave the EU for Ireland to leave the EU, how would you vote and why? Look around you. Every bit of EU money is that they're being spent around here. This would be a fucking desolate country if there was no EU stuff. So I'd vote to stay in and not do it the English stuff. I have to get this. Oh, yeah, correct. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, like, I know nothing about it, but I'd probably vote to say in the EU because there's so much well, trouble going on then, with yeah. Britain. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, even Brexit, I'm still not 100% sure of what Brexit is, but there's so much trouble and like drama going on over because yeah, of that. They're a big EU. country, they'd be fine. Like, we're fine today. Do you, do you guys feel European? Um, yeah, I definitely do. Sometimes not because I'm Malaysian as well. Davey, serious. I am being serious, but I would feel European because we are a part of Europe for so long. And what about yourself? Yeah, no, yeah, no I would feel European. Be serious. No, I, obviously I would, yeah. But like, it's a kind of a hard question. Like, how, how do you actually feel European? Like, yeah, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, how would you feel Asian? How would you feel American and stuff? Do you know what I mean? Well, I'd feel European because I could travel to anywhere else in Europe, basically, without yeah, getting a visa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would make me feel European. Do you think uh, migration from the EU has made Ireland a better or a worse place? Yeah, it wouldn't. Like, it, doesn't, like, it doesn't have an effect on us, so I don't see why we wouldn't want them to come work. Yeah, we already have them here as well, yeah. so it wouldn't make a difference. My name is Patrick. He's a diehard working class, okay. Okay, and, and what do you think about Ireland's relationship with the EU? Well, I welcome the project that you're working on because we don't discuss it enough, we should. Uh, I don't take a simplistic view of the Brexit, uh, the British Brexit thing, that it's necessarily uh, the evil that it's been described as. Don't know and we won't know until time will tell, you know. So we can I was living in England when the um, currency issue was being debated. It was crazy and we were laughing at them. I went to the UK and they had a different perspective. And I, that was when I really began to, to think that we should think critically, not necessarily 
criticise and bitch about Europe or bitch about Britain either. Don't take a side. Be objective and sit down and work out all of the pros and cons before we actually make decisions instead of shooting from the hip, which is what the politicians do. We're going to have to educate ourselves about what, what legislation means and can we be manipulated, can our futures be manipulated by legislation because we can be and, and we are. It remains to be seen whether Britain has made a good decision or a bad decision. I'm not going to judge them on that. One thing I do know, I've got personally, I've got family who came from the north. I'm a run out of the north by the British, okay, by the unionists who represented uh, the British opinion over here. Nonetheless, I give the British full credit for making the right decision on the euro. And I'm not prepared to rush to judgment and say that they've made a wrong decision on Brexit until we can see how it goes. As a person who wants a united Ireland, I think strategically Brexit offers opportunities to us. Uh, if we can play our cards right and negotiate cleverly on behalf of the people of the North at the moment. If there was a vote tomorrow about Ireland leaving the EU, how would you vote? It's a great question. It needs to be really, really scrutinised. I personally, being a very critical thinker on the issue, would vote for us to stay in for certain. This particular point of time, we do nothing. We wait. We see how it affects Britain and we do our utmost to take advantage of this. This is So I've no intention of being disrespectful to British people, but I do want to see a united Ireland. If we were to leave Europe at this moment, it would wreck any chance of united Ireland. It would go back to Britain dominating the locality, which is what happened before we joined the EU. So I'm conscious of this because my family came from there and I know the people who have left behind and what they have to put up with. If we want to help people of North and South, we stay in. We allow negotiations on the border to see what we're given. And I would suggest that a lot of unionists, ironically, my great enemies in the corporate sector, may even encourage people to vote for more of a United Ireland because at the end of the day, they will eventually be more loyal to the half-crown than the crown. I can't really envisage a time where we should leave Europe. A United Ireland. It's a phrase that people in Ireland just can't seem to help bringing up when it comes to discussing Brexit. Google searches for the term United Ireland spiked more than 600% the day after the Brexit vote. It even featured recently on the front page of the Financial Times. That was back in April, and it was because the Irish government had just secured what it saw as an early victory in the Brexit process. Basically, it managed to get the leaders of all the remaining EU governments to agree that if Northern Ireland ever democratically chose to join with the Republic into one country, then it would automatically be part of the EU without any need for any sort of entry process. It would basically be just like what happened with the reunification of Germany. So that automatic entry was explicitly stated in notes to the EU's Brexit negotiating guidelines in in April. The 27 remaining EU countries voted unanimously to adopt those guidelines, and the vote took less than one minute. I spoke to a man who was in the room, Ireland's then Minister for European Affairs, Dara Murphy. He was fresh out of negotiations and we met up to discuss Ireland and Europe. He told me that unexpectedly, Brexit was drawing Ireland and the rest of the EU closer together and improving the way that the EU works. I'm chairman of the EPP <laughs> Europe Ministers, as well as being a vice president of the EPP, and I've been at, must be hundreds of Brexit-related meetings, mm. uh, and I have to say I've been at, I don't know, many, many hundreds of meetings since I've, I've been a, a, a Europe Minister now for a few years, three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never seen such unity uh, of purpose between the member states, between the institutions, and even between the political families as there is on the issue of, on the issues uh, of, of, of Brexit. 
the, 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 the key elements uh, of the guidelines were agreed yesterday unanimously without dissenting voice from any member state. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is pretty unique in my time. Are you pleased about this separate document that has language about the United Ireland? Um, yeah, we are, yeah. yeah. The Irish government does not believe this is the time for a poll on a United Ireland. But equally, we have a legally binding international agreement. One of the key elements of this peace agreement uh, is that it does provide for a pathway to a United Ireland through referendums. Uh, and our simple explicit uh, request was that, uh, you know, the, the, the current position of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, that nothing in Brexit would, would change the fact that, um, that if the United Ireland is achieved by the democratic will uh, of the people, uh, that then that part of what would then be Ireland uh, would be part of the European Union as the rest of Ireland is. And do you think that Brexit has made a United Ireland more likely? I, I'm, I'm not prepared to say, you know, that is not a matter for, for us. That would be a matter in the first instance for the people of Northern Ireland to, to determine and to work with, you know, within their own communities and, and ultimately, you know, to have a referendum. Given the other challenges that Northern Ireland is currently facing, as we all collectively face uh, with respect to Brexit, and by we all, I would include, of course, the United Kingdom and the rest of Europe, uh, I think we, 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 you know, we need to focus at this time on ensuring that we mi minimise the damage for Ireland, all of Ireland, North and South, and indeed Europe and the UK. And as I say, my own strong view is this is not the time for for a border poll uh, but that of course will be will be a, a matter for others to decide is there anything else that you're particularly pleased about i have nothing really to add further other than to say that um, the template for how the european union has approached this uh, crisis uh, this difficult um, uh, reality this methodology the barnier methodology so to speak I think is something that a, we need to continue it through this process, but 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 I, ha I have been struck by how effective it has been. So we have other challenges, and uh, you know I think I think maybe in time, uh, I think I think you you may well see this type of uh, uh, of Barnier approach um, uh, replicated. So it's caused an improvement in the functioning of the I EU, so. ironically. Yeah, I think it has. Really? Yeah, I think the EU has functioned better um, than I've seen with respect to this, uh, which I don't think anyone would have predicted. I, I, I still very much regret that the UK is leaving, uh, but we will take, obviously, any unforeseen upsides that we can. Uh, and and um, it, it was a striking meeting yesterday. As I say, it, for me, it was a first, and I'm, I'm around longer than most of the other people around the table now. Europe ministers don't last very long, generally, but uh, certainly the I haven't seen uh, this degree of consensus between the institutions and the member states before, you know. So you heard there, Tim, that insistence on unity with the rest of the EU, which has very much characterised the Irish government's stance so far since that Brexit vote. But there is another side to this debate. 
So I spoke to Ireland's Eurosceptic. <laughs> Singular. Yeah, there is one at least. His <laughs> name is Ray Bassett. He's a retired diplomat. And he thinks there hasn't been a debate on Ireland's membership of the EU because he accuses the government of being too Europhilic mm-hmm. uh, and out of step with the public. And he, he accuses the media in the same way. He thinks it doesn't countenance such debate, which is kind of strange because he's been publishing opinion pieces fairly regularly about uh, <laughs> Ireland leaving the EU over the last year. But anyway, uh, let's hear from Ray Bassett. Sometimes I come across, and people write that I'm sort of a mad Erexeter. I, I, I think it was a very sad day when, when Brexit occurred. I regret greatly that we found ourselves in this position, but we've got to choose the least worst way forward now and not let sentiment or knee-jerk reaction get in our way. There's arguable cases um, for both continuing with the remaining members of the European Union and also uh, looking at the possibility of a new arrangement with, with the European Union because of our unique situation, particularly the border, that it really ca- what, what we need cannot be catered for in the normal uh, EU uh, style arrangements. What I'm trying to do is maintain the present advantageous situation as near as possible. And it seems to me that it's much easier to, to negotiate that outside the European Union rather than just being one of 27 it's it's not an easy thing to do to square this. And I think we should have said from day one that Brexit causes us such problems that we have to almost become another strand in the negotiations. I do think the Irish government is serious enough now. I think they're going down the wrong path. I think they made a bad decision not to go for a unique settlement. The European Union is changing. And without the British as allies, I think there will be a further move towards a kind of a German-French uh, access and that's something that we are very very uncomfortable with as a lot of smaller countries are there isn't a huge identification with europe unlike a lot of other places there isn't the same attachment as you would say it getting luxembourg and some other places now we should be discussing every possibility and in the end maybe staying with europe might be the with the european union might be the best thing can we just say again that Irexit is a pretty crap name? It's a terribly crap name. It's never going to fly. They're going to have to think of something else. Um, I've been trying to think of. I've been trying to think of something else myself. I can't really come up with anything else. I've heard Ergo. Oh no, no, no! Please no. Well, it's not the only problem with uh, with Bassett's argument, unfortunately. So here's the thing. Okay, so. The biggest articulation of his argument is in a publication that he wrote for Policy Exchange, which is a right-wing think tank uh, in, oh. the, in the UK. It's a sort of a pro-Brexity sort of an environment, you know, with the obscurest funding sources to boot. Bassett's piece fits right in with that uh, and, and in with the pre-Brexit literature in general in the UK in that it's based in a lot of innuendo and not that much concrete fact. Yeah, okay, go on. It's not really original research in the sense that he hasn't actually calculated or investigated the actual implications of leaving the EU and what it would mean for Ireland, especially economically. So there's like no Mm -hmm. footnotes, for example. There's Mm -hmm. maybe two. It's more rhetoric style argument. Okay, and he puts forward some very good arguments against Brexit, right? Okay. So he talks about all the crap ways the Brexit is going to affect Ireland, which is all, yeah, that's totally true, right? It's going to have a terrible effect. But, you know, he, he lists all this as though he's making the case for Ireland to also leave the EU. Right. But in fact, 
all of those downsides, it's really not clear that it would be assuaged if Ireland also left, right? So maybe, maybe on leaving the EU, okay, then maybe we can better arrange things to to protect trade with the UK and, you know, right. but what would happen to Apple and Facebook and all of the pharmaceutical multinationals that are based in Ireland? I mean, the, so the multinationals that are incredibly important to the Irish economy are only there because we're in the single market because they have access to sell to 500 million people. Uh-huh, right. Yeah, they're right, not there yeah. for the 4.5 million Irish people, that's for sure. Uh-huh, sure. Okay, the other thing is like this idea that, yeah, the UK is a really important trading partner. It is, it is a really important important trading partner, but it's, it's no longer the overwhelming trading partner that it was in the past, okay? If you look at Ireland's most recent trade figures, the breakdown goes like this. The biggest destination for Irish exports is, number one, the United States, followed by Belgium, followed by the UK, followed by Germany. So Irish exports to the UK haven't been greater than to the rest of the EU combined since the 1970s. Wow, that is that is a real uh, eye-opener, actually. I did not know that. Yeah, all right. So the, the substance of our relationship, trade relationship with the UK, is the fact that we have this sort of overlapping territory of overlapping uh, national claims. Mm-hmm. And then we have this traditional relationship, which is based on the fact that the UK doesn't produce all of the food that it needs. Okay, okay? Right. And in large part, Ireland fills that gap. Mm-hmm. It's very retro, you know, breadbasket kind of scenario. That whole thing, yeah. Yeah, so that means there are some sectors that are really, really dependent. So like, for example, the UK buys 84% of Irish poultry okay. exports. Right. For example, mm-hmm. 80, and 65% of cheddar cheese that's sold outside of Ireland. Okay, right. Yeah, and 80% of Irish mushrooms destined for abroad. Sure, and those um, are big sectors that we have to... Uh, well, mushrooms isn't that big. <laughs> but they're fairly big. Yeah. Oh, they okay. are important. They're important where they are. They employ lots of local people, very important where they are. Yeah. But okay, leaving the EU would like jeopardize everything else, everything apart from those exports. Right. And and those exports, you know, they may not be that secure anyway. So one of the big threats of Brexit, right, is if the UK decides to pursue what's called a cheap food policy. Mm-hmm. So they used to do this back in the days before the EU. What does it mean? So basically, the EU has really, really strict food standards. Trade deals with it take ages because it's really strict about stuff like beef and all that. I'm, I'm very glad. It means things are a bit more expensive, right? It, and also it kind of protects farmers in the EU. But anyway, the UK could decide to dispense with all of that. Uh, and suddenly um, Irish produce and cheddar cheese would be uh, competing with basically the food equivalent of like cheaply manufactured Chinese electronics. Oh, right. So this is like the the dark side of the bendy banana debate. <laughs> yes, exactly. Jesus. Okay, and that would like crush the mushroom producers anyway, you know, it would crush the cheddar cheese producers anyway. Irex it or no Irex it. <laughs> it just doesn't throw off the tongue, does it? So now the, the, the next big huge issue is what about the euro? What happens to the euro? Right. Okay, the, the, I mean, the UK is one thing, it's not in the euro zone but but ireland is if we left then the bank deposits of every person with an irish bank account would be converted into a new currency which would probably instantly collapse oh god right and i don't think anyone in ireland wants to see a return to the punt at this stage imagine trying to pay back our famous debt in punts bloody hell because of course our huge debt would remain denominated in euros and we'd be paying it back with this whatever currency we have. Like I brought this up with Bassett and he was like, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, that is like the, the toughest question about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so essentially Bassett, right, he, he's a euro pessimist. In his view, the EU is doomed. The euro is a currency anyone was going to collapse. You know, he never had faith in it to begin with. So kind of what the hey, you know, let's Irex it. 
Right, okay. So, like, he's arguing essentially that Ireland is more attached to the Anglosphere than to the EU. The evidence that he has for it isn't very solid at all. It's more uh, based on innuendo in his in his writing, but his argument is that Ireland has more historic and emotional and cultural links to, like, the broader Anglosphere, and particularly to the UK, than to the EU. Okay, right. One of the things he states is that uh, the, quote, vast majority of emigrants from Ireland went to Anglophone c- countries during the financial crisis. That is actually not true, okay? So according to Irish government statistics, in general, more people every single year have gone into the rest of the EU than they have to the UK. Okay, I'm actually not surprised by that at all. So if you add the UK, the US, the Canada, uh, the Canada and Australia all together... Um, there tends to be a greater number going to the whole Anglosphere than into the EU, but not like by loads, you know, Mm -hmm. like for example, last year in 2016, it was like 44% to Anglophone countries and 35% into the EU. I'm certainly not actually surprised by what you say, because of course, you and me, Naomi, uh, you and I, we both came of age, I suppose, just at the cusp of this financial crisis. We were looking for jobs at the time, for instance, and so many people we knew moved to European countries on the European mainland. I suppose you could call us part of what they refer to as the Erasmus generation. I mean, we both did the Erasmus program, but you didn't uh, necessarily have to do the Erasmus program uh, to be going to Europe at that stage, because uh, the Erasmus program, which is essentially a subsidized student exchange program, had already set up this really solid kind of network in mainland Europe uh, for Irish people. I went on Erasmus exchange in Lausanne in Switzerland, uh, during which, of course, I ended up learning French. And uh, once I had that language, that led on to an internship in Paris and then to a job, and that eventually led me to um, living and working here full time. And that's the story of so many people I know now, uh, my age, um, at this stage. Yeah, similar story here. So um, I'm a 2009 graduate here, graduated into the teeth of the financial crisis. Also did an Erasmus program, which totally changed my life because I ended up learning Italian, which is why I ended up working as a journalist, because I had the language and it got me my first proper assignment as a reporter in Rome. I must say, I also lived in the UK for a while, and that was also really important for me for my career after I graduated. So I'm a, I'm a serial immigrant, Tim. I'm a serial immigrant. <laughs> You're not the only one. But uh, I wanted to point out as well that Ireland's relationship with the EU has not always been a very happy one, right? There was especially bitter moments around the bailout, um, this moment of a really high tension between Ireland and the EU. Yeah, that's it. So like the bailout time, as well as the Nice and Lisbon treaties are t- typically the ones that people refer to if they want to talk about like moments of Euroscepticism. Mm. The reason why this is like a bone of contention is essentially property developers were able to push up property prices enormously between themselves because they were bidding against each other during the boom the celtic tiger years and that meant that the property prices got inflated up and up because they were able to draw down these huge amounts of loans from irish banks who in turn were being borrowing loads from international banks particularly german banks right yeah and then of course in 2007 2008 the crap hit the fan Okay, (laughs) suddenly no banks could borrow anymore and there was a crunch and the banks, uh, the Irish banks were like frozen in time with enormous liabilities and uh, and the property investments they were secured against suddenly collapsed in value and it was a total crisis. Okay, so Ireland, the state was at this time struggling to borrow in international markets. States borrow all the time just to fund them, uh, you know, they're running the state and they they were struggling to borrow for for affordable rates or at all. And nobody Mm -hmm. knew how bad it was going to get. Right. Everybody was in a total 
panic if people were worrying is everyone gonna you know is there gonna be a run on the banks will people pull their money out of irish banks and collapse them blah 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 so outcomes in the middle of this panic are then finance minister brian lenehan uh, he wasn't long in the job and he didn't really have much of a background in finance it's worth knowing anyway so he said basically he announced to the world don't worry about the irish banks we got them right we have them state guarantee Right. This is these are such depressing memories of this time uh, because, of course, this bankrupted the state essentially. Yeah, it bankrupted the state exactly. Okay, so now Irish state bankrupted, <laughs> and so here is where the EU comes in, right? So it uh, in this context of trying to stop what they called contagion at the time when it, you know the crisis, the panic was going from country to country. It basically strong armed Ireland into agreeing to take in huge loans so that you know it didn't go under and the the matter was settled, mm. and in return turn Ireland had to do a huge austerity program and kind of surrender control over its public spending for a while and it, it meant cut, huge cuts to spending and massive tax hikes and right. it did this brutally as you know Tim yeah yeah pretty brutally eh? like I mean severe austerity in Ireland for a decade and everybody was affected everybody either had you know they're oh you know we, we can't get dental treatment anymore or you know my pension's gone or every, everybody had a, or a real real you know pay cuts and everything and people emigrating like ourselves so okay fast forward to today everybody lived through that long period of crazy austerity and now today the country is the fastest growing in the eurozone again mm-hmm. um, but the people who are at the bottom the ones who relied on the safety net, they lost out the most and they're still losing out because we have the highest level of homelessness on record. Right, for sure. And you can still very much see the traces of austerity on Irish society in a way that it wasn't there before. I mean, Ireland was always a, you know, a pretty poor country in relative terms before the economic boom. But this kind of like homeless people in Galway, a small city, you know, where I come from, had never really been seen before like you see it today. So it's, you know, that's a, a new problem that has come out of this. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the economy is growing and some things are sunny in some respects, but I mean, the the pain of the of that of that whole period is very very much evidence and very fresh in people's minds. Anyway, so essentially what we have now is we have really different cultural memories about what went on then. Right. So, yeah, in Ireland, loads of people feel that they were pushed into this position of austerity by the EU, right? So the impression came across quite a few times that Ireland as a small state was being bullied by the bloc as a whole. And in the speeches of Nigel Farage, for instance, he often mentions Ireland as an example of what could happen to a small nation and why the EU was unfair. And he used that to campaign for Brexit uh, in the UK. Right, so it felt like Ireland was taking the hit for the whole EU. And it, it was a feeling that was summed up in this confrontation between a popular journalist who's called Vincent Brown and a guy from the European Central Bank. Can you put this in context first, Tim? Yeah, right. So this was back in 2012. Uh, the guy's name is Klaus Masuk, um, if I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, forgive me, Klaus, if I'm not. Um, and he <laughs> he makes this uh, really cringeworthy, uh, patronizing remark at, at a press conference in Dublin at the time, um, where he says that he was really impressed by how well-informed the Dublin taxi drivers were about the economic situation. Um, and it was supposed to be a joke, you know, but it fell really flat. You know, nobody was joking mm. at this point, you know, in the depths of a So, um, you know, Vincent Brown jumped straight on it and he pretty much demolished him. Why are the Irish people required to pay billions to unguaranteed bondholders under threat to the ECB? You didn't answer the question the last time, so maybe you'd answer it this time. Well, I think I think he doesn't have anything to add to what he's already said. Well, well, sorry, just we, we, this, we isn't this isn't good. This isn't good enough. Sorry, this isn't good me. enough. You people are intervening in, in in this society, causing huge damage, 
by requiring us to make payments, not for the benefit of anybody in Ireland, but for the benefit of European financial institutions. Now, could you explain why the Irish people are inflicted with this burden? Well, I think I have a question. You have nothing to say. There's no answer. Is that right? Is that it? No answer? I have given an answer. He's given an answer. You have a, given an answer that doesn't address the question. That's your view. That is my view, and I think it would yeah. be the view of the taxi driver and the view of our viewers tonight. Right. Okay, so that kind of gives you a flavour of, uh, you know, that's a hugely popular clip and a moment that many people remember in Ireland. And it's a flavour of the emotion around that time. And you know, interestingly, Naomi, that was a huge clip in France. It was viral in, in, in France with subtitles and everyone was talking about it at the time. So that shows you how far it went and what kind of impact it had on the psyche of the EU, that interview. That's interesting. Mm. Um, what I've encountered is that there's a totally different memory of the events from some parts of Europe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like in the wealthier European nations like uh, Germany and the Netherlands, there's a totally different impression of like the whole sequence of events in the bailout. Right. Right. And it's not just concerning Ireland. It's also Spain and Greece and Portugal and basically all the big losers of 2008. People in the in the rich northern countries have a really strong uh, kind of self-identity about fiscal rectitude, right? Mm, right. And they have this odd notion. Okay, so the, it, it has two parts. The first part is the the notion that it was the spending of the Irish people, the ordinary Irish people, that got them into trouble. Like, spent too much and they went bankrupt and they kind of deserve it, you know? Mm. They, not, they don't really have the conception that the state went bankrupt because it guaranteed the banks. Right. Therefore, saving, you know, German bondholders and other international bondholders right from being burned and helping to to stem the general panic at a time when it, was, it seemed like any European bank could just, like, topple over. Right. That's the first part. And the second part, the second misconception is... They think it was free money. They think Ireland was just like given money by the rich European nations. They don't seem to realize they were loans. They were loans that mm-hmm. had to be paid back with interest and with very, very stiff conditions attached. Right, sure. And, and the international press was really hard on Ireland during that time. And I think a lot of people felt like the whole situation was pretty unfair, like that they had been these model EU citizens and suddenly, you know, um, nobody's supporting them anymore. So, like, why didn't that? I mean, that was a big uh, fallout, really, with the EU. Why didn't that lead to a sense of Irexit? Oh, I hate saying that word. I'm sorry. Oof. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a sense of Irexit along with Brexit. Uh, why didn't that happen at the same time? Yeah, that's the weird thing, right? That's the weird thing. It's just like, it's the big absence. Yeah, you have all that anger, but people did not make the step, okay, then we should leave the EU. Not really. Right. So there was a big fall in trust in the EU at the time, um, but it's kind of recovered. And there hasn't been a swell of anti-EU feeling. It's noticeable that no major party campaigned at any point for uh, an, for Ireland to leave the EU. Mm. Like you have uh, minor parties on the left who want who want a, like a left wing uh, right. exit from the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know Sinn Féin, who are our kind of most successful populist leaning party. They're you know they want to stay in the EU. The right. Eurocritical, they want reform, but I mean, like, so does pretty much everybody. It, it just, it hasn't materialized. The political parties don't sense uh, a desire for it. Uh, the polls don't show it. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a major, major thing that Ray Bassett leaves out of his analysis, okay? He leaves out the fact that we have a measure of Irish sentiment about the EU, which is really thorough. It's called the Eurobarometer. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I bought a Eurobarometer in Ikea last year. <laughs> you probably did, Tim. I'm sure I did. 
Okay, no, it's a re- it's a real opinion poll thing, right? So it's a it's a b- big collection of surveys uh, in member states, which is run by TNS Opinion uh, for the European Commission, and it, it you know it goes back gauging opinion on various issues right back to the 1970s, and it's a huge, gigantic collection of data and of attitudes towards the EU in particular, going back for a very long time. Great, like that's that's really handy. Yeah. So so what does it show? Handy for our episode, right? Yeah, big time. So okay, so one of the things that the Eurobarometer measures is whether people have a positive or negative image of the EU. As of last November, the most recent one, Ireland has the highest percentage of people who have a positive image of the EU in the entire bloc. Yeah, okay. I've heard that before. 55% positive compared to like 13% for those who have negative. Okay, well that, I mean, honestly, that doesn't sound that high. 55%. Yeah, I mean, it's for the EU as a whole, right? The nebulous institution, as it were. Okay, but maybe it's more instructive to look at the, the individual policies, which are more clear and specific, okay? So like the single currency, for example. Okay, the euro. So like for our listeners, uh, this replaced the old currency, the punt, in the Republic of Ireland anyway, uh, in about 2002. Yeah. So when asked about the euro in Ireland, 85% of Irish respondents are in favour. Wow. That compares to an EU-wide average of 70%. So we're significantly above there. Okay, I'm actually, I'm I, I, I'm, I'm shocked by both those figures, but 85%, my God. Yeah, yeah. And, and now if you look at immigration, okay, so this is about uh, attitudes towards immigration from the EU. Uh-huh. Now, of course, opposition to this was a central driving force behind the Brexit vote. You cannot separate the two, okay? Mm-hmm. So... Tim, if you had to guess, what percentage of Irish respondents would you think approve of immigration from the EU? Uh, Okay, well, if it's anything like Britain, uh, surely not very many people approve of that. It's 81% approve of immigration from the EU. Oh my god. 81%. 81%. 81%. 81%. And that's a full 20% above the EU average. I mean, I'm actually bowled over by that. 81%. Are, you, uh, are these figures biased, Naomi? We can put it up on the website and they show... Listen, all polls can be swayed one way or another. Uh, and sometimes the question leads to a particular answer. But the same question is being asked in all of the EU countries. Mm-hmm. Not all of them show really high results like that. Some of them have low results. So whatever happens, Ireland seems to respond to this question more positively than the other EU, mem- the members of the EU bloc. Wow, I mean, like, it's it's really astonishing. Even if it was anything approaching um, 81%, even if it was 60%, like, in, in, that would be massive. Like, it might be worth appreciating here that there was very little in-migration in Ireland until it joined the EU. Uh, you know, for the last few hundred years, the country has been, you know, pretty pretty desperately poor. So people spent most of their time trying to get out of it rather than ever trying to get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then during the economic boom, like you said, during the 90s and the 2000s, the country saw its first major influx of migrants, and most of them came from EU states, mostly from Eastern Europe, who were benefiting from the uh, EU expansion during those years. Yeah, and it has meant, meant that Ireland has become more and more European, actually, literally. Um, so mm-hmm. as of, I think it's two years ago, our biggest group of non-Irish-born people in, in Ireland are Polish, not the UK. It used to be the UK for a very long time. Now it's Polish. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's we're talking, uh, just to give it in context, it's it's just under 12% of people who were basically like born elsewhere that, that right. are resident in Ireland. The groups that are growing the most, by the way, are like Brazilians, Spanish and Romanian. Oh, wow. Well, that's, that's an interesting trio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
So it turns out in the space of 10 years, at one point between 2002 and 2012, the number of, um, of foreign born people in Ireland actually doubled. You know, after this kind of like extreme change, there's massive, uh, there's massive support, massive support for immigration. And it turns out that we love the freedom of movement aspect of the single market. Okay, so when asked specifically about that fact, the fact that citizens can live and work and study and do business across borders, that has a 90% approval rating in Ireland. Well, I mean, this is like this really warms my heart, you know, because of course, you know, I'm an immigrant as well in an EU country. So like, it's just great to see people like uh, approving of this uh, en masse, yeah. um, especially from my own country. Is there any specific reason for this that we can pinpoint? I mean, like, have we have we as a nation learned extra empathy from hundreds of years of sending our kids off to live in other countries? I have no idea, to be honest. I really don't know. I know this is a, something people question in Italy because at the moment there's rising and kind of anti-immigrant sentiment in Italy. And of mm-hmm. course, uh, that's a massive emigration nation as well. And they often ask, well, what about, you know, our sons and daughters who we sent off for so many years to, to the United States and to France and so on? Um, so I don't know if we're kind of unique in that. I recently wrote a piece for Politico, which was about the experiences of people who moved to Ireland to work and something that they all told me uniformly was that it was warm and it was welcoming and that if there was any country in Europe where you might want to move to as someone who's outside Ireland's a really good one people really are nice and friendly we better call the Irish tourist board stat and they, and they feel safe no but honestly and they, they complained about all sorts of stuff too like apparently our houses are crappily built and cold they and are. miserable and all this kind of <laughs> they stuff are. I, stuff I never knew but um, but yeah they, they nevertheless had great affection for Ireland and even homesick when they eventually left if they wow, did wow look at that wow Wow, look at that. Hey. Home sec for Ireland. But anyway, th- I think the interesting thing is to compare in these statistics where the UK sits on the scale and where Ireland sits on the scale. Uh-huh. So they're just completely, they like bookend the scales, right? So you have all the other countries kind of arranged in the middle. And then on any given issue, Ireland will be like the most positive about stuff. And, and the UK will be the most negative you know and so you know we're just completely on opposite ends of the scale which is kind of weird if you think about it like because we're so geographically close like what what is behind that difference well i suppose like if we look at the history even though we are geographically close even though we do speak the same language and even though we have so many interactions on a daily basis with each other uh, historically uh, like we have gone in such different directions when it comes to this question of europe you know okay Uh, go ahead go on how so Okay, you're going to kill me, Naomi, because I've made a list. <laughs> <laughs> no, a list. No, a I list. love your list. Stop, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Apparently, humans are naturally drawn to lists, so it's probably a good thing. Okay. Um, I made a list of, th- of three historical moments that I think that illustrate that difference. So, I mean, I think the thing in- that they have in common with all of them is that Britain has this, you know, long-term narrative of being alone against mainland Europe, mm-hmm. while Ireland has this long-term narrative of uh, trying to get away from Britain and join mainland Europe, you know, more or less. So they're almost, uh, you know, kind of uh, diametrically opposed. Okay, so what's your number one on the list? Okay, so let's rewind back to the time when the north of Ireland was being colonised by English and Scottish planters. Uh, You'll remember this, listeners, from previous episodes, uh, especially episode one. So uh, during that time, Gaelic-Catholic rulers were being driven off the land in Ulster. This is about the beginning of the 17th century. And Naomi, where did they go? Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. They went to Europe. They went to mainland Europe. So this is the famous uh, Flight of the Earls. So this happened in about 1607. The Earls basically means like the old Gaelic aristocracy. 
So essentially they ended up having to be in exile while their territory was being taken over by this, uh, by this plantation project. Exactly. So you end up with this whole diplomatic envoy, basically, of Gaelic rulers hanging out at the big courts of Catholic Europe in in Rome and in Madrid and in uh, Paris, uh, trying to get their lands back. So actually, um, there's a really fascinating online resource of this, which you can access. It's in um, the University College Cork uh, collection called Celt appropriately. Mm, I know it will. So basically, it's the diary of Tygo Kienon. So this guy was like a, a traditional scribe slash chronicler, old like Gaelic style role. Mm. Uh, he was like attached to one of the Gaelic lords. So he went into exile with them along with like other of their entourage and coterie and so on during the flight of the earls. And essentially what they did was they had this extremely long, extremely miserable journey. It's got like these hilarious points. Okay, so uh, they're, they're on their way to Rome, right? That's their ultimate destination. But they they go through Switzerland. Tim, you have to listen to this. Mm. This is how he describes uh, Switzerland, okay? It was strong, well-fortified, uneven, mountainous, having bad roads and no supremacy, rule or claim to submission by any king or prince in the world over the inhabitants. In themselves, they form a strange, remarkable, peculiar state. They make their selection of a system for the government of the country each year. Half of them are Catholics and the other half are heretics. And by agreement and great oaths, they are bound to one another for their defence and protection against any neighbour in the world who should endeavour to injure them. <laughs> well, you got it in one. Yes, <laughs> I suppose yeah, you right. recognise that from your Erasmus year. I mean, I kind of do, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, of course, those like loads of descriptors, those loads of adjectives, like classic sign that this has been translated from Irish. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, this was their, their language at the time. Fast forward to when they get to Italy. Okay, O'Keenan starts stressing how the Irish are getting special treatment everywhere they go. So the Gaelic lords all arrive in a procession in Rome, ultimately received by the Pope. So um, they meet the Pope, right? And he asks them to carry the canopy over the blessed sacrament. Here's how he describes it. Never before did Irishmen receive such an honor and privilege. The Italians were greatly surprised that they should be shown such deference and respect, for some of them said that seldom before was any one nation in the world appointed to carry the canopy. They were jealous, envious, and surprised that they were not allowed to carry it on this particular day. Okay, so he's basically saying that the Irish got special treatment from the Pope. Yes, so special that Mm. all the Italians were jealous. (laughs) (laughs) I hate when somebody else carries my canopy. (laughs) Sadly, the whole thing ends on a slightly sadder note, um, because basically all the Gaelic lords just, they start dying. Mm. Anyway, they're all buried under very fancy uh, gravestones in Rome. Oh, are they still there? Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. All right. Well, I, right. Uh, this death, right, or or the fact that they don't come back anyway, you know, this has huge knock-on consequences, right, for uh, the future government governance of Ireland because they right. never did get those lands back from the colonists yeah. like they like they planned to do. Uh, so this ushered in a new kind of colonial era in Ireland um, with those plantations. But you can also see that from these interactions with European powers that there was uh, already quite a strong link between England's political enemies in Ireland and England's political enemies on the continent, you know, which was fundamental to Irish history, really. So, Tim, what's your historical moment, number two? Okay, so, uh, actually, today is, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, today is the 14th of July. 
It's the anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, uh, which, of course, kicked off the French Revolution. Oh, God, I feel so ignorant. I always say Bastille. Sorry, I'm going to continue to say that. I mean, I think people in English normally say Bastille. I think that's, that's perfectly acceptable. <laughs> but uh, uh, but uh, French people would slap me across the face if I did. So I've just gotten into the, <laughs> into the habit of... Can I please see that next time? I really want to see a tiff over the pronunciation of the Bastille. We'll do an experiment. We'll go down to the, to the monument and do an experiment. Yeah, I would buy tickets. Yeah. <laughs> did you know that one of the main players in the fall of the Bastille was an Irish guy from Ennis. Ennis? Yeah. Go on, I'm intrigued. Yeah, right. His name was James Bartholomew Blackwell. He was a, a student in the Collège des Irlandais in Paris. And that building is still there. It's the Irish Cultural Centre today. Uh, it's in the Latin Quarter, just uh, near the Sorbonne. And it's on Rue des Irlandais. And that tells you quite a lot. That shows you how established the Irish community was in Paris at that point. Of course, they had a road. Yeah, they had their own street. Tim, from what I remember, basically loads of like wealthy Irish um, Catholics, they, they used to send their sons to be educated in Paris during the 18th century, right? Because um, Catholic education, of course, during this time, as well as worship, was forbidden because of the penal laws. Right, yeah. And what's fascinating about that, actually, is that these students in Paris, um, they got involved with revolutionary politics. So it's kind of like... It's like a, an Irish name is. <laughs> yeah, I'd say with a, I'd say with a lot less singing and a lot more blood. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, I mean, it, at this stage, it was very romanticized. And the Irish, just like the French at the time, would have seen this as a huge impoverished peasantry overthrowing a tiny, evil, corrupt and opulent overclass. Of course, you know, the, the, the French Revolution wasn't really like that uh, in reality. But that's, you know, that was the kind of propaganda that was put out there. And in the minds of Irish students, in Paris, you know, if it was possible for French peasants to overthrow the aristocracy of Versailles, then it had to be possible for the Irish peasants to overthrow the colonial ascendancy in Ireland, right? And I can see the cogs of their brain whirring, right? Because how long after the, the fall of the Bastille that there was a rebellion in Ireland? Right, 10 years um, or nine years. In, in 1798, the French Revolution basically came to Ireland. And who was there at the head of the army in 1798? Our man from Ennis? Our man from Ennis. James Bartholomew Blackwell, who had been at the storming of the Bastille, led the Irish into revolution uh, during the 1798 rebellion. Oh my god, I think I'm getting like a historical crush. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> so this gave um, like a unifying ideology to the Irish rebels, I suppose, that hadn't been there before. Exactly right. So, so from that moment on, there was, there was um, a political state to aim for, i.e. a French-style republic. Um, this was an, an idea that could be backed by everyone in Ireland, regardless of their religion. And it remained from 1798 onwards as this fundamental ideal of the Irish nationalists right into the 20th century. And of course, the Irish tricolor was largely modelled on the French flag. Of course, yeah. So like mm. the, in case you don't know, the you've got the green, which is the kind of Irish Republican tradition, and you've got the orange, which is called the orange tradition, mm -hmm. and peace between them. That's yeah. the symbology. Yeah. And like, like we mentioned in a previous episode, uh, we can't forget that the Orange tradition, the uh, Presbyterians in Northern Ireland were highly active in the 1798 rebellion as well. And pro, we must say. Yeah, pro. Pro, yeah, with, with the Catholics, yeah. Uh, of course, the attraction of that French-style republicanism was it, it undermined the sectarian hierarchy that was imposed with the penal laws and had been used to oppress people in Ireland. Yeah, exactly. And it also, you know, it also established two very opposed political systems um, in Ireland. So, you know, the Irish rebel movement, because it took influence from the French Revolution, not only became anti-British, it became anti-monarchy. Mm -hmm. And that put it at odds with Britain which had kind
kind of built itself up as the ideological opposite of revolutionary France, and also as kind of the protectors of monarchical tradition in Europe. What about Wolf Tone? Um, so he, of course, was the leader of the 1798 rebellion. Did he invite Napoleon over to, like, back them up? <laughs> he did. He did. He went to Napoleon and he asked Napoleon, come and invade Ireland, help us uh, rebel against the English, set up a French-style republic in Ireland, um, and then we'll help you invade England if you want. That was the idea. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, Napoleon agreed. Of course he did. Um, and when <laughs> the 1798 rebellion broke out, uh, Napoleon sent 40,000 French troops uh, across the sea to join the Irish rebels. And just to put this in perspective, if that had succeeded, that would have been the biggest invasion of British territory since the Spanish Armada. So what happened? Why didn't they arrive? Oh, it's, oh, it's, 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 it's this terrible romantic tragedy. Um, Napoleon's ships got, they got so close to Irish land, um, they say, that they could throw stones at the shore. Um, but a storm stopped them from landing and kind of ripped their fleet apart. And by the time they got anywhere near Ireland, the British army had just come to the coast and, you know, more or less said, what the hell are you doing here? Okay. Uh, so it was, it was too late. And the Irish rebels were brutally defeated. Um, you know, the Catholics were, of course, forbidden to have any weapons in Ireland. Um, so they were literally fighting the British army with farm implements. Oh and a huge number of them all, all over the country were fighting with, with pikes mostly. So this was really bloody defeat and without French help they were totally doomed. Nonetheless it really shook up the British at the time um, so after this the whole coast was fortified um, with these so-called Martello Towers uh, to ensure that European armies couldn't land in, army, in Ireland again. Of course there were landings, there were to be landings uh-huh. right? I, I think this brings us right into our third historical moment right? Right and maybe you might be uh, better poised to talk about this than me. Uh, the third moment I want to point out is on the eve of Ireland's independence in 1916 Uh, to the text of the Proclamation of the Republic, uh, which was, of course, distributed from the General Post Office during the Massive Rebellion that that year. And if you read that text, it makes a specific mention of Ireland's historical relationship with Europe. Yeah, it's a really famous phrase, our gallant allies in Europe. Right. And... like there was actually um, a cultural dimension to this as well in the greater nationalist tradition lots of Irish nationalists had quite strong links with European cities that weren't London you know at this time Uh, they were trying to form an intellectual and political movement of course that was outside the realms of imperial tradition so places like Paris and Zurich which were international hubs for thought and innovation at the time were really important uh, for Irish nationalists and then of course you know Irish intellectuals in general you know um, you can think of um, James Joyce of course who wrote Ulysses is just, you know, one or two streets down from the Collège des Irlandais where Blackwell had uh, stormed the Bastille. Wow, mm. that's a, a curious fact. I didn't know that. Mm. Well, yeah, okay. If it's the 1960 rising, yeah, I can say something about it. So basically, in the context of the First World War, right, um, from Britain, what that rebellion looked like mostly was betrayal and treason with right. Britain's enemies, mm. okay? Um, so the British authorities were, you know, they saw the hand of the Kaiser in it all. You know, they kind of inflated the importance of Germany and the whole thing. And you can kind of, if you want to be couch psychologists, you can kind of maybe say, like, maybe it was easier to understand this, that concept of, you know, a recognizable enemy rather than what was then the second city of the British Empire, Dublin, sure. you know, rising up mm. and, uh, and, you know, being seized by a genuine homegrown rebel movement. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's interesting um, in, in the records 
of uh, or the recollections from rebels who took part they they note that after they were arrested they were brought to wales to be imprisoned and um, when they arrived uh, you know in in britain they they heard the locals saying that they were the pro-germans mm. you know the pro-german rebels <laughs> yeah um basically at the time like germany didn't mind stirring up a bit of trouble for britain it was kind of like the various imperial powers had little games that they played where they would stir up trouble in the backyards of each other. The landings um, that we mean is basically some rebel sympathizers managed to procure some ancient mousers from Germany. (laughs) These are like really old guns and smuggle them into Hoth in the Hoth gun running. There was another attempt to run some guns that failed like on the eve of the Easter Rising as well. Wow, so that's Hoth again. I mean, like it's funny to think about those guns being uh, run to shore in the shadow of the castle of guys for St. Lawrence that we spoke to uh, last week. Oh yeah, they would have gone they would have gone right past the driveway. Yeah. Wow, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I suppose all in all it has to be appreciated really that Ireland doesn't really have uh, like Ray Bassett was suggesting a similar cultural legacy as Britain in its relationship to Europe. Um, the whole no, narrative uh, of British history like I said earlier is this idea of a scepter dial, you know, protecting uh, itself from European invaders and the whole narrative of Irish history uh, is collusion basically with Britain's enemies, you know, um, uh, in, in order for it to self-preserve. And I really think that our lack of, as it were, uh, an imperial outlook in Ireland really undermines Ray Bassett's notion that Ireland and Britain are essentially in the same boat when it comes to leaving the EU. This this is my view of it, right? So essentially sitting around a table on equal terms in Brussels with France and Germany and Spain to Ireland, you know, that isn't in any way a diminishment. In, in many ways, it's actually the realisation of a dream, whereas the UK really struggles with that idea. You know, the idea of potentially being overruled by Spain, you know, in a scenario like that is clearly abhorrent to a group of people in Britain, which is obviously not insignificant. And they seem to refer back to the days when, you know, Britain was the power that bestrode the earth. So looking at things then from another perspective and keeping all that historical uh, baggage in mind, what would it look like uh, if Ireland left the EU? So um, speaking in just practical terms, I asked John O'Brennan, who's an EU politics professor in Maynooth, and he told me essentially it would be turning back the clock. Prior to the 1970s, before, um, you know, the whole EU structure began to, to form, Ireland was really, you know, it was arguable that it hadn't really become independent because it was so economically dependent on the UK still. Joining the EEC and then the EU allowed it to develop into a new historical phase that it's really starkly illustrated by the trade figures. So like in, in, in the 1970s, it was true that Ireland actually sold less to the whole of the rest of, the, of what's now the EU than it did to the UK. It was overwhelmingly exporting to the UK. And now, I mean, what it's selling to the, the rest of the EU completely overshadows its trade with the UK. So this is what O'Brennan told me about what it would mean in practical terms if Ireland joined Britain and left the EU. So 
Tim, given all this, what is your conclusion about Ireland and Europe? Okay, I'm going to be boring, Naomi, and say that it's unique, right? I mean, I think like um, Ray Bassett said, Ireland definitely doesn't have that same instinctual relationship with the central bloc as maybe Luxembourg does, right? Like, it, that's a closeness that you can only get with other actors in the relationship uh, when they're a short drive away. And Ireland just doesn't have that. It still is um, emotionally and physically quite far away. However, I would also definitely stress that Ireland's relationship with Europe and the EU is simply nothing like that of the UK. And it's it's really short-sighted to assume that the two countries, because they're, you know, just beside each other, should throw in their lot in terms of Brexit. So if anything, I'd say that Brexit has pushed the Irish much closer to the EU. And ironically, maybe it has helped to heal over those wounds inflicted by austerity, or at the very least, distract from them. And, you know, that's that's my point of view. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think that going forward, if things proceed as they are going now, Ireland will be growing much more close with the EU. That that relationship has been brought closer together by the very fact of Brexit, by mm-hmm. the very the, the requirement that Irish officials work so closely with the EU, the rest of the EU 27 with the UK at the other side of the negotiating table. It's a kind of a, it's a, it's a historical moment, if you ask me. I mean, there's going to be minefields ahead that we can't really predict. Um, there are going to be times when Ireland wants one thing and maybe Germany wants another thing. It's, the other thing is like public opinion itself these days is like a fraught, unpredictable business, you know, sure. as everybody knows. But yeah, absolutely, Tim. Ireland is a completely different kettle of fish than the UK. And if you ask me if there is one way of inspiring a passionate pro-EU movement in Ireland is to say that we have to leave the EU because of Britain. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's for sure. All right, so uh, we're out of time. Uh, There you go. That's all we have time for today. Um, But I'm sure this is... uh, No, I'm positive this is something that we'll return to. Uh, So what are we tackling next time, Naomi? Okay, so we are reporting on the diaspora. Um, Again, it's a Brexit-related topic because, of course, it caused a huge rise in the number of people who are claiming Irish passports. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of these applicants are descendants of Irish immigrants. So we're going to be speaking to some of them uh, about, you know, why why they're doing it and what it is like to claim your Irish identity as an adult. Yeah. And on that point, um, before we sign off, Naomi, we have a listener question. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, We had to get around to this one because it's actually so relevant to our next episode. So Daniel from Scotland wrote in to us by email uh, to ask whether Irish people are annoyed about all these new passport applicants from Britain after the Brexit vote. Uh, We might remind our listeners uh, that many people with recent or semi-recent Irish descent are given an automatic right to Irish citizenship. So over 51,000 UK residents applied for passports in the first quarter of 2017, and that represents a rise of 69%. Well, Daniel, I tell you what we'll do. We'll try and do something uh, different this week. Rather than sort of just give our own opinions on that, we'd like to open it up to the listeners, yeah? So everybody tell us what you think. We're asking you exactly to to answer Daniel's question and um, we'll see what the the reaction is. What do you think of the policy of allowing citizenship to be claimed to dissent? Has this been changed at all by Brexit? Uh, We'd love to hear everything you have to say on the issue. You can get in touch with us as usual via email at theirishpassport at gmail.com or of course on Twitter at at passportirish. And we're looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And please don't forget to share and rate the podcast if you like it. To get the word out there, we really appreciate it. It actually helps so much. Yes, please do. And thanks so much to everybody who's already done so. And thanks for being with us. 